Hi there, my name is Adam Waters, and I'm the lead pastor here at Grace Bible Church in Elmhurst, Illinois. I'm just so glad that you made the decision to take us along with you this week on life's journey. Here at Grace Bible Church, we are a family of faith who seeks forgiveness, healing, and hope in Jesus Christ. Now, we might all come from different backgrounds, but each of us recognize that the tremendous needs in our lives point us to one place, to God, for His answers, His provision, and mostly, for His grace. I hope the following program gives you a new perspective on who God is, who you are, and how you too might find forgiveness, healing, and hope in our Lord Jesus. Thanks for listening. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us insight into your word. I pray, Lord, that you would give us understanding and clarity as we uh, dig deep into what you have done for us in Christ, who we are in Christ, what Christ did for us and maintains for us in the heavenlies, even as we stand here today. We pray, Father, that you would give us transformation in our lives. We do not want to leave this place the same. We don't want to just know more about you. We want to know you, and we want to be changed by you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, I remember staying up late. I had a bedroom in the basement of my house, so I stayed up later than I should have. Frequently, I remember, and there was creaking in hardwood floors upstairs. I would run back into my room because I knew mom or dad were awake. But sometimes up late, watching things I shouldn't probably be watching. And I'm thinking back on some of like the game shows that were talk shows that frequently went on, uh, especially back in the 80s and the late early 90s. And one of them was Love Connection, right? Chuck Woolery talking about Whoopi and stuff on the Love Connection show. And I remember uh, watching that and probably getting more education than I probably needed as I uh, watched those, those episodes. But One of the things, you know, sort of the premise of the show, for those of you who are younger than me who might not know, is it's basically they set two people up on a date, they go on a date, and then they talk about it. So what happened? Were they nice? Did they say nice things? What did they look like? How did they dress? What went on? So on and so forth. And I was getting to think, you know, it's sort of like you're earning and you're trying to put on a good show for the other person in this date in order to make a really good show before everybody who's watching. You know, sometimes our own Christian walk is like that. When we approach God, we approach God in this way that we're seeking to put our best foot forward. We're seeking to show him that we are the one worthy of his love. And sometimes we even do it for the benefit of the audience, those who are watching. We need to say, be, or do exactly the right thing in order for the one we're on this sort of perpetual date with will continue to like us will pick us, will choose us. And this mentality bleeds into every area of our lives. We seek to earn the love and respect of others. We seek to be someone we are not so that others will look at us differently and pick us. Because we all just want to be chosen. We all just want to be loved. We all just want to be accepted. The scripture, though, tells us that we have an eternal love connection, as it were, through Jesus Christ. Because what he did, not because of anything in ourselves, not because we could earn it, we could say the right thing, we could do the right action, we could go to church enough, we could do enough Bible study, we could say all of the cliche Christianese things. It's simply because of who Christ is, what he's done in order to rescue us, 
sinners, the objects of God's love. I mean, we might look at the circumstances in our life and surmise that God has sort of left the building, so we work harder to get him back. We can look at our feelings and assume, well, I don't feel God with me, so it must mean he's not there. But I think the most prevalent thing is when we think, feel, say, or desire something sinful, when we're reminded that we're sinners, and we go out and willfully choose to go against God's will, we get this sense that God has departed, that that love connection has been severed. Because certainly, Satan would love to allow our guilt and shame to lead us to that conclusion. So today we're in Romans 8. We're in verses 31 through 39. Bibles are in the pews if you'd like to open up old school. Otherwise, we have it in new school, digitally here on the wall. I'd encourage all of you to not cheat. Don't be lazy, even though we have it up here. You need to bring your Bibles and they need to be all marked up and worn out because that's truth. That's truth. Okay, so let's look at it. Paul writes, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring a charge against those who God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus died. More than that, he was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine, nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, or depth, nor anything else in all creation will, able be, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What words. What words for us this morning, knowing that there is nothing we can do Others can do, demonic powers can do, our circumstances can do, nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So let's go back and see exactly, let's follow Paul's argument and let it teach us that we needn't fear being severed from the love of God. So go back to 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? Well, what is Paul saying? What are these things? Paul is summing up his argument that he's made from chapter 1 to, through chapter 7 and some into chapter 8. So let's recap exactly what the book of Romans is saying in the broadest of terms. Chapter 1 and 2, we're lost in our natural state. There's nobody that is righteous. We're all far from God in our heart when left to ourselves. Chapter 1 and 2. Chapter 3, the law could not save us. All the law could do was that show us that we were broken and we had to receive salvation simply by faith. That's what chapter 4 talks about. That it's by faith in Jesus and not by works of the law that we are saved. Chapters 5 and 6 tells us that Jesus came to suffer and die as our substitute so that we could be freed from the penalty of sin. Chapter 7, even in our Christian walk, we sense the pull of sin in our lives. 
Yet even so, it is Christ who keeps us. And into chapter 8, the Spirit enables us to walk day to day in the power and knowledge of God as our Father. So So Paul says, so then what do we say in response to the fact that God has done everything? God, through Christ and the power of the Spirit, has done everything necessary to make salvation possible and real in our lives. So Paul asks, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is doing everything necessary for us to be his children, to graft us into the vine of Christ, then what or who else could possibly get in the way? Now, Paul here is likely speaking, and we see this theologically and applying to our lives today, and we should, it's good. But Paul is likely speaking about a very specific set of circumstances that are occurring in Rome around this time. So if you remember that Christianity started as a Jewish sect, the first Christians were Jews. And what happened was, is there was this Jewish-Gentile distinction that was perpetuated from Judaism into the Christian faith. Rome, being an epicenter of the Roman kingdom, there were all sorts of people there. And it's a place where there was a pretty hefty Jewish population and, needless to say, lots of non-Jewish people. And so these people come together as children of God, as Christians, and they're trying to figure out how to live together. What does it mean to trust in the law? Is the law necessary? Do I have to be circumcised? Or do I have to be baptized? Or do I have to do this right or that right? How is it then exactly how we're saved? So we have that aspect. At the same time, you have the Roman Empire looking for scapegoats for many, many things. We have them looking to the Jews, who have always, for one reason or another, I think I know because Satan's out to hurt God's plan, have been the object of persecution throughout their entire identity. And you have the Christians, this new unknown sect, who refuse to bow to the emperor. They only serve one God, that God through Jesus Christ at that. So we have all of these sects and all of these ideas coming together in one church, and Paul seeks to set the record straight. Now, we don't know exactly what's going on in terms of specifics, and we can surmise as we read, but there was also intense Christian persecution that culminated ultimately about 10 years after this was written. This was written in 57 or so. Culmination of the persecution started in 67. Okay, 67. But it was ever-increasing. So we look at 32 after he says, this is our circumstances, this is what's going on, says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? If we're dealing with this in our day-to-day, and Christ even, and God, even in the face of this, has given us his son, then what do these other things really matter? How do they really get in the way? You see, Paul is arguing from the greater to the lesser. He's saying God gave you everything, his son, the most important, valuable thing, person, entity, anything, gift that he could have given you. And if he gave you that, why should we think that he wouldn't graciously give us everything else? On Thanksgiving, we're going to talk, we're going to hear testimonies. I'm excited for this. We're also going to hear a little bit about how when we think of salvation, we think of just one aspect, our eternal life. But we fail to see all of what comes with salvation, even in the here and now. What God wants to so graciously give us now out of his great love for us. We had someone come in and move, with, move in with us for a time and they showed up unannounced basically and we made the decision on the spot. We're moving in. This is your room. This is your bed. 
These are all of your sheets and everything that you need. You can use that bathroom. We have extras of this. We have this. We have extras of this. If you need a ride to work, we'll find a way to get you to work. If you need a job, we'll try to put in a good word and find a job. Day one, he was so grateful. We were sitting and talking. I kept hearing his belly rumbling. And I said, are you hungry? He goes, I am starving. I said, well, why didn't you go just get something to eat? Well, I didn't want to impose. We live our life like this in the Christian world. We say, God has given us everything, so now I'm afraid to ask for these little things. But Paul is saying, God has given you everything, and that's the reason you should ask. God's grace is the opposite of limit. It's excess. My cup runneth over. This is the grace that God has shown us in Christ. That if God is willing to give us his son, he will give us everything that we need out of his grace and his love for you. If he's the one rooting for us, who cares what anyone else has to say? Whether it be people here on earth, whether it be demonic influences that want to tell us that we're unlovable or not loved, God says that we're lovable. God says that we're right and connected to him in love forever. One of the key words in this verse for me is graciously. He's done this graciously out of his goodness and love for us, poured out even more than we could ever expect. And he does it because he is good. He does it out of his grace. Verse 33, who will bring any charge then against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Like I said, Rome was likely accusing everybody of everything. Rejecting Judaism, rejecting pagan gods, rejecting the emperor. But Paul reminds them that the only person whose approval we should be seeking is approving of us. Has approved of us. And nothing can change that. So the first point out of this is that Christ secured our love connection with God. It is Christ who justifies. It is Christ who died and was raised on the third day. Not us. We do not create this love connection. Jesus did it. So what is justification? It's an important question. We talk about these words all the time. We throw them out. What does it mean to be justified? Well, if you look at like maybe the Sunday school definition, or the, it's just as if I didn't sin. What it is, is this is a legal declaration of God that looks upon the sinner who's guilty in his sin and declares him innocent. Innocent. That's an important word when you think about the word justification, okay? Sometimes we think not guilty, but we know, being in the justice system here in America, what it's like. There's a difference between not guilty and innocent. Not guilty means I do not have enough evidence to prove that you committed this crime. So I cannot declare you guilty, but I'm not absolving you of the crime. You are not innocent. Maybe. Innocent says, I know for 100% that there is no way you committed this crime. You are therefore innocent. When we think about justification in our life, we sometimes live as if we're not guilty. Like, yeah, I really did it all, but they don't really, there's a, a shortcut, a loophole in Jesus. So God knows that I'm really the one who did it all. He really wants to condemn me, but because of this plan, even a plan he put in place, we sort of get out of it because of what Jesus has done. The problem with that sense is we walk around day to day continuing to feel guilty, shameful, sinful. We live in this place where we grovel. 
But look at what Paul says about the love of God and how he lavishes us with goodness out of his grace. No, we are declared innocent. Innocent. We stand before God, I would say newborn baby, that's not innocent enough. Pure as a driven snow, not innocent enough. We are completely the people that God intended us to be if it were us he created in the Garden of Eden. I want you to think about that. You stand before God because of what Christ has done, the justification that he brings to you by your faith as if you're standing in the Garden of Eden. Now, we know day to day what really goes on. We know the struggle of the sin and flesh in our body. Paul talks about it in the chapter right behind this, chapter 7. But because of what Christ has done, you stand perfect and innocent before him. So this is how Paul can say, if this is how you stand before God, what does any of this other stuff matter? How can anyone bring a charge against you? The only judge of the world has declared you innocent. This is a revolutionary thought for us. I know for me, I sometimes feel like I'm squeaking into the kingdom. Like God says, oh, all right. You said the right words. Jesus saved me. So now you're in. But I know better. That's not God's heart for us. God's heart for us is that we are declared innocent and stand before him pure. Jesus removed the block, you see, that prevented God from interacting with us in love the way that he always wanted to. There are times that we stand before God and we say, well, Jesus, or God only loves me because Jesus did this. I would argue that the reason, and so let me finish what I'm saying. So then, therefore, God sees Jesus and not me. But I think that's wrong. I think what Christ has done on the cross has removed the obstacle, as it were, between the Father and us. So now, instead of the Father seeing our sin, the Father sees who we were created to be from the beginning. The Eden version of us. And that by virtue of what Christ has done. So God really sees me. God really sees you. When God looks at you and loves you, interacts with you, he sees the son and daughter he has intended from the beginning. Of course he sees our mistakes and our sins. He sees when we get off into the muck and mire And it grieves his heart because we don't need to be there. We don't need to be there. We've been forever forgiven in Christ. Now we stand forever united in Christ and we stand before him pure. So how is it that we can be declared innocent even though we continue to sin here because it's not on us? Christ did it. We did not justify ourselves. Jesus did it. I told you the story before, being in a Bible study, and someone was railing against another whole sect of Christians. And they said, well, at least I know to have faith. It's like, oh, man, I don't get it. Jesus justifies us. More so in the book of Ephesians, it says the very faith we have has been given to us as a gift of his grace. Think about that. Think about that. We didn't choose ourselves. 
The Father did. It says, before the beginning of the foundations of the world, God the Father knew you in love and called you into his kingdom when the time was right. And we don't maintain our salvation. It's the Spirit within us that maintains that connection through our faith to God. So then Paul goes on 34, if then no one can condemn, who then can condemn? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, was raised to life, is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. So if we didn't do anything to earn our salvation, we can't do anything to keep our salvation. That's the second lesson for this morning. Christ maintains our love connection with God. Christ creates the love connection. Christ maintains the love connection. We can never be separated from God because we are united to him through Christ. What does that mean? This is a phrase United in Christ, union in Christ. This is a theological principle that says when we believe and have faith in God, in Christ's work, we become fused to Jesus Christ. And there's, well, we see it in Ephesians 1. First, I was going to put it all on here. It's a long, continuous run on. But Ephesians 1, 3, 14 says this, because in Christ, in our faith in Christ, because we're united and grafted into the vine of Christ, we have every spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing. We have election unto holiness. That means God's chosen us to be conformed to the image of his son. Sometimes I'm like, God, I know that you are going to make me like Jesus. Please do it faster. I hate being like this. I want to be like that. God reminds me that he has promised to do this and he will. His promise is sure. And it will come to fruition in your life no matter how you struggle here on earth. We have in Christ adoption as God's children. That means that we're no longer not part of the family. I didn't know this. I was researching adoption here in Illinois. I think it's like this probably all over, but I didn't know that when you adopt a child, they take the original birth certificate and black out the names of the birth mother and birth father and put the adopted parents' names in there. It's as if they've given birth. When we're adopted into the family of God as a child of God, our original certificate that probably said Adam and Eve on it, erased Jesus. We are part of the family and always will be. In Christ, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In Christ, we have knowledge of the secret things that God had not revealed until then. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit as God's treasured possession, and we have every reason, therefore, to praise God. All because of our unitedness, our union with Christ. So we are in Christ, but it's more than that. Wait, there's more. Christ is in us. That's the other aspect of it. There's actually multiple aspects of it. In Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The law I now live, or the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Not only are we present with Christ on the throne even now, seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenlies, but Christ the King is in us too. I don't know about you, when I pray, I, I, in my mind's eye, I pray, but I think of God being way out there still. Like I'm, if I had a you know, radar, I'd shoot my prayer beams that out. But the truth is, is because of the Holy Spirit's connection and our union with Christ, he's here as well. 
He's ever-present in our heart. And we can say, Lord, here, Lord, I know you're here. I think in the church, we sometimes make the mistake of saying or thinking, well, we can't pray this way because then it means we're making ourselves God. But God's in there. It's not us. It's Jesus. Christ is in us. Not only are we in Christ, Christ is in us, we're becoming more and more like Christ. We're being, the word is sanctified. Day by day, we're growing into the image of our creator. As we act and think and speak like Christ, we become more and more like him. And finally, we are with Christ. We are forever in a personal relationship with Jesus. It's only as if, you know, we're in Christ there. Christ is in us here. We're becoming like the person we follow, and he's standing with us. He walks with us as we go day by day. This is what it means to be united in Christ. And the basis for all of that is Christ's death and resurrection on the cross on our behalf. Because he did that, we have this. And if it required him to do that for us to have this, why do we live as if this depends on us? Because it doesn't. Therefore, we have every reason to be praising God day by day. Lord, you have not left me. My circumstances do not tell us whether or not you have abandoned me because you have promised on your sure word that you are with me and in me and I in you. It says Christ continues to intercede on our behalf. Christ in heaven as he sits before the Father. And we continue to struggle here on earth. We continue to sin in disobedience here. Jesus says, I paid for that one. I paid for that one. Sometimes I think Jesus is like, oh, okay, I paid for that one too. Every sin... In Hebrews, it says he died once for all for sinners. Think think about this. Christ's death on the cross 2,000 years ago is the basis of your forgiveness in 20 years for that thing you have no idea you're going to do, that thing you never tell yourself. You tell yourself, now, I would never do that. Those are dangerous words, folks. I'm just letting you know. That sin stands forgiven. This is what it means to walk in the freedom of Christ. When we come to him and ask for forgiveness in the time of our need, when we realize that we've sinned and we repent and ask for that forgiveness, it simply restores this relationship, this, this sense of brother or of uh, parental love or parental relationship, but not of love. He always loves us because he's the one who made it possible. Christ is our only intercessor between God and in humanity. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6 says, For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. This verse tells me that we have direct access to Christ as our only intercessor before us and the Father. There are other traditions within Christianity that look to other humans, saints, the virgin, as if by going to them gains us greater access to God. I tell you that is not true. 
Because of what Christ has done, a complete and open path to God the Father has been created for us. We have got to take advantage of it. We've got to take advantage of it. I'll be teaching in a a youth camp here next week, and we're talking about the prodigal son. And I was trying to figure out, you know, what do I do with the second prodigal? Because I'm going to tell my story, right? That I'm easily the first prodigal. There's no problem with that. I can make that align, no problem. But what do I do with the second one, the older brother? Well, I went back and I thought, what does the word prodigal even mean? It means wasteful, right? Wasteful. I think because of that parable, we see the word prodigal, at least I did, and I thought, well, it means someone who's, who's left, Someone who's out there. But that's not it. The word literally means one who wastes. The younger son wastes the prod or the younger prodigal wastes the father's inheritance because he wanted all of the riches without the relationship. So he goes off, does this thing, gets hungry, comes back, begs for forgiveness. And then the older brother's salty. But I call him a prodigal too because he wasted the relationship that he has with the father. He was there the whole time. He spent time with the Father, serving the Father. And the Father says, indeed, you are with me and everything I had is yours. We do this in our Christian walk. I think this idea of the two sons creates a microcosm of many of our Christian walk. We start out as the younger prodigal, but we end up as the older one. We waste the relationship that we have. That relationship that God wants with you is made and maintained by Jesus Christ, not by you. And Christ will always be there because he's perfect and unchanging. He's there to make intercession on our behalf. Hebrews 7.25 says, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Christ's eternal life in heaven, seated on the throne, standing between us and the Father, saying, I did it, I paid it, I paid it. He does that. He maintains that, not us. So, since Christ is perpetually interceding between us and the Father, maintaining our love connection, Paul can make sort of his final point in this text, who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? The answer is nothing can separate us. He quotes the Old Testament, As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered sheep to be slaughtered. He's saying that Christians, now remember what it was like in the first century for Christians. Persecution. Death. We talk about, I got laid off, where's God? I understand. But these people are talking about they're leading us to be fed by lions. Where's God? Paul's saying he's there. He still loves us, that our circumstances do not dictate God's love for us because we don't maintain that. God does. This is a quote, actually, from Psalm 44. It describes how God gave the Jews over for discipline for their behavior, but that it did not stop God from loving them. All of these circumstances in our life, these hard things that we struggle with, the death of loved ones, our own physical health, troubles with work, troubles at home, many of these are impacted by what we've done, our sinful actions. But God allows them to happen because he wants to change us into who he's created us to be, like Jesus. But it's never an indication that God's love is gone, so don't make that mistake. 
So if our love connection is forever secured and maintained by Christ, and the trials and tribulations of this, right, of this life are not indications of God's rejection of us, then the third point, we can have every confidence that God's love in Christ makes us victorious. In other words, we will have victory in Jesus. Victory. 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paul answers, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And as a result, there's this Greek compound word, I don't know, if I go into the German, it would be uber conquerors. We just don't win, we slaughter life. We don't just eke by in life, we demolish it. You know, when we look at the, I think, sort of the nominal idea of the fight against good and evil is sort of like this yin-yang thing. Even Christians are guilty of it. We say, oh, like God and, and Satan are sort of going back and forth and they're fighting back and forth and we're kind of holding our breath to see how it ends. Or maybe we'll say, yeah, but in the end, good does win because that's the nice, pleasant thing to say. Good will conquer. No. When you read the book of Revelation and Jesus gets up, he says, stop, and things evaporate. That is the power in our lives, the life of Christ in us because of what he's done. He says, for I am convinced, verse 38, that neither life, death nor life, neither angels nor demons, that means Satan and his minions, neither the present nor the future, or any powers, height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that has increased Jesus our Lord. Paul was convinced. Are you? Are you? Is this your day-to-day -day reality that you are an uber-conqueror because of what Christ has done in your life and what he does to maintain the love connection between you and the Father? Does it feel like you're squeaking by? Are you getting through this by the skin of your teeth? I can relate to that. The reality is, is that you are and will be forever a victor because of what Christ has done. That's why in the, in the book of Revelation, it says that when we're saved when, at the last day, when we stand before the throne and we are judged and God says, you're my child. You've trusted in Jesus. I give you the crown of life. I give you the crown of victory. We take them off and we toss them back to the feet of Jesus because it's what he has done, not us. We could take no credit. Christ has done it. And because he's done it and he promises that we will be victors and he tells us the reality of this in our life that whether or not we feel like it, we are victors. Do we live like it? Let's live like it. What if we left here today like we were victorious over everything? What's going to happen in this situation? I don't know, but I'm going to win. Why? Because Jesus won. Yeah, why? <laughs> Stop striving in your own strength to, to make life happen. I think there's a good word, manhandle. We try to put our human stamp on things, manhandle life. Trust God. He says that you are more than a conqueror. We can come boldly then as a victor into the throne of grace. When we're struggling in the sinful world, when we're tempted to sin, when we're tempted to open our mouth and say something that God has clearly told us, do not say, we actually can hold our tongue. 
Sometimes I talk to people and it's just like, it's like I got to say it. And I know that's your, some of yours experience too. We do not have to sin because we are more than conquerors. That means we can resist temptation without believing that sin is inevitable. We've been freed from the power of sin, Romans 4 and 5 and 6. We come quickly and boldly to Christ for strength. Lord, you won the victory for me. I need victory in this moment. Give me the strength and then live as if it's true. We spend a lot of our lives seeking to manage outcomes. We live as if we're trying to manipulate a certain end to occur. What God is calling us to do is to live completely sold out and trusting to him, leaving that outcome to him. What that looks like for us as we, in our time of temptation or need, come to God and say, Lord, I need this. I'm being tempted. I really want to act, think, say this thing. And then we do what we can on our part to live out the truth of the gospel in our life. We resist sin. We strive to live a good life, but in the end, we know that God is the power in us that makes it possible. And we're really, I mean, are we not living from a position of victory? Knowing that even when we fail, because we will, that that does not change God's love for us and that we will one day be conformed and stand before God in the image of Christ and exactly who we are created to be. So live and work when you're struggling with the circumstances of your life out of a growth mentality. We have everything. Ephesians 1 says we have everything. Romans 8 says, and nothing can take it. So if we have everything and nothing can take it, why don't we live like that? I want my life to be different. I want to be changed. I beg God to change me into a person who lives like that. And that's my prayer for you all as well. So remember, Christ secured our love connection with God. Because he secured it, we will never lose it. He maintains our love connection with God. Because he maintains it, we will never lose it. And so we stand always and firmly in the love of Christ. And so we can have confidence that we shall have victory. Uber conquerors. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, um, Lord, this reality is just so far from our hearts and minds sometimes. Lord, make us people who see the victory first. Help us, Lord, to trust in what you have told us. Help us, Lord, as we struggle with sin and temptation, as we want to do it our own way and we want to be different from what you've called us to be. Lord, clear our minds to see that we have been given everything we seek in your Son. And that connection that has been made for us is maintained so we needn't strive. That in the end, you promise that we will be victorious and so let us walk in that victory. In Jesus' name, Amen. Because of what Jesus has done and his death being so pivotal for us, it's the basis of everything. This is what we celebrate when we celebrate communion. When we take the elements, the bread and the wine, in this case it's juice, when we take these, these are symbols of the life, 
death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They point us to the fact that everything we have, all of our victory, all of the love we experience with the Father, our forgiveness before him, were all predicated upon a sacrificial action where Jesus decided that I will do what needs to be done to save my people from themselves and from their sin. On the night that the Lord was betrayed, as he was having dinner, supper with his disciples, he took a piece of bread during the Passover and sort of repurposed it. He says, this is my body. He broke it. He gave thanks. He says to the Lord, he says, this is my body broken for you, given for you. Every time you take of it, do it in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup. And after giving thanks for the wine, he told his disciples, he says, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant for the remission of sins. When we drink of this cup, we do it in remembrance of Christ and the death that he died that we might find forgiveness. What I want to do today is I really want us to take communion together. But I want to give us a moment to sit here. Michael, just play a little bit, like what you're doing is good. And I want us to sit here and I want us to consider any area of our life because God's talking to you. He's been talking to you all week. He's telling you there's something there that he wants you to give up. That if he could die for you for this, then you can die to this for him. And I want you to ask for forgiveness and get right with the Lord. And then I'll come back up and we'll do, we'll take the bread first and then we'll take the cup. Pastor Adam here. Well, I want to thank you for tuning in to Grace Bible Church, and I would love to hear what you thought of today's program or of ways that we can be praying for you and with you. So check us out on social media at GBCL. Also, if you would like to support our ministry, you can give securely at our website at www.gbclm.org. Now remember, God loves you, and so do we.